We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525 how great it is we got the band back together here welcome back 602-508-0960 we got chris llewellyn producing pro tem chris thank you for all your hard work today we have lewis hallman in studio he is the managing director of inside analytics insideanalyticsllc.com is his website and we have hugh hallman who is the former mayor of tempe and an attorney in town an educator among many other things, we do COVID and politics, third hour every Tuesday. What do we know? What do we need to know, as one of my bosses used to say? Every morning, he'd call me at 7 and say, what do we need to know? I want to know which boss that it was. was Bill Bennett. He would call me every that, morning I'd at 7 and Bill. say, what do we need to know? And I'll tell you, it makes you get up early. It does indeed. <laughs> I mean, You've got to flip through the Wall Street uh, Journal uh, and the uh, and uh, New York Times and uh, the Washington Post uh, and the, yes, and the Washington Times. I used to do that for President Reagan. I would sit and look at all those papers and see how they all differently reported the very same event. Is that right? Yep. So here we have a very quick update on COVID because not only are people tired and bored of it, uh, but the political analysis that we probably should be doing about it is more important. And the numbers are just this, that here we have in the state of Arizona on June 7th, that is just yesterday, uh, a total of 8% of ICU beds filled with people with COVID. That is, of course, some people who came in for hip surgeries and got tested and turned out to be positive, but nonetheless, that's 130 people. Uh, you have non-COVID patients, Wait a minute. I thought the newspapers told us that the only thing that mattered were that hospitals were overrun with people who have COVID, except that we still have 1,327 people in the hospital from other stuff, adding up to 85% of our hospital beds are still filled with patients. Crisis, crisis, crisis. Uh, the IP beds, that is standard IP beds, uh, we have 602 beds with uh, COVID patients in it, 6,820 beds with other kinds of patients in them. That is people who came in for hip surgery and didn't test positive. It's a terrible thing because you have an elective surgery where you make a lot of money, and if they were only COVID, you get 20% more. Oh, well. Sorry for the hospitals. Uh, we do then have 18, uh, uh, 1,083 beds that are empty. But here's the breaking news that we make fun of this, but it is pointing out, ladies and gentlemen, that for a year you had reporters screaming numbers at you as if they were meaningful. And they were only meaningful to people who didn't understand numbers. They could create fear, fear and surprise. But they could not create insight and information on which we could make decisions in a sensible way. So here's an example. Um, on June 5th, just two days prior, uh, there were 234 empty beds in our ICUs. On June 7th, there were 270 empty beds. That means that there were 36 additional empty beds two days later. That's a 15% increase in empty beds. That should be a headline story, shouldn't it? And then the same with the uh, regular hospital beds. We went from having uh, 945 empty beds 
on June 4th to 1,083 empty beds on June 7th uh, for a 14.6% increase in empty beds. Those kinds of idiotic numbers were the sorts of things that reporters were screaming about. And the only reason to raise it today is to beg people. When you start seeing those kinds of discussions in newspapers by reporters who were educated in our worst of public schools and didn't have math teachers, uh, that we end up with panic and fear-mongering instead of analysis and understanding. Nicely said. Yes, sir. I don't know. I, I think you may be giving them a little bit too much credit because, to me, that just attributes the lack of clear information to the sheer staggering depths of their ignorance. But is it also perhaps the case that say, editorialism or narrative agenda maybe had something to do with the issue. I just see now, for instance, very recently, uh, editorials like Newsweek and uh, uh, some other left-leaning sites are starting to talk about gain-of-function research in coronaviruses out of China, where for the last year, 15 months, we were told that anyone who entered those, those phrases in the same sentence was a racist, a bigot, a conspiracy theorist. And Facebook wouldn't publish it. That's and correct. Facebook wouldn't publish it. Yes, this was censored from the Internet. Right. And we were all called crazy for advocating this very position a year ago. So that was my point. So the COVID numbers are short and sweet this week, precisely so we can talk about what has happened to our republic. Your, your guest in the last hour, General uh, Michael McGuire, Mick McGuire, um, I thought summarized brilliantly, um, without reference to Abraham Lincoln, that the risk to the republic is not going to come from some behemoth across the shores. It is going to be at our own hands that we will commit suicide precisely because we will not put into the balance the weight that liberty deserves and mask mandates and the behaviors that people are still engaging in demonstrate Uh, a character that they are willing to sacrifice liberty, not just because they're being told to do so, but because they're not willing to fight that loss. It is easier to go along to get along than it is to put a stick in the ground and say no farther. We also have the issue that it's been a full year of these kinds of overwhelming government impositions into our public lives and Uh, our own moral decision-making. And we have seen, I think, at least I I felt it personally, I wonder if you two have, this kind of growing habitual kind of custom to all of this, where if I'm going into Habituation. Yeah, if I go into a store and I see other people with masks, I'll put a mask on to not make people uncomfortable. But, you know, my my behavior is predicated on what others do around me as well. But it's almost as if, though, we've been in this for so long and we've had these constraints on us for so long that they're kind of becoming the default. And uh, I don't know, I feel a bit like a loon saying that, uh, but I'm still checking my pockets, you know, even if I'm just going outside and stuff to see, do I have my mask with me and the like. Just in case. But, Seth, you and I have had this argument because you've seen me put on a mask and you belittle me properly, uh, in your presence at least. And my answer is... I belittle you because you have had COVID and you are twice vaccinated. That is correct. But I would add that Lewis's point is the good one. I don't mind people who decide to take action that even compromises, quote, their liberty, unquote, if they're making it by their choice, precisely because they're interested in making someone else feel better. They don't mind 
the sacrifice they're putting on themselves and they don't feel it that way. I certainly don't. Do I find it absurd that I'll drive down the street today and see three different instances of people wearing masks in their car as they're driving down the road by themselves? Who are they signaling that they are more valuable as as members of this society? What I'm going to draw on then is something we exchanged earlier in the week, and that is it really started almost six years ago. The Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government has been developing through uh, artificial intelligence the ability to provide a social meter of how good or bad a citizen you are. You're talking about the social credit system. The social credit system. And I think this is a piece that we have talked about. And Seth, I think you've probably given it the greatest voice and clarity that behaviors people have engaged in in this pandemic demonstrated a willingness, and it caused us a heavy heart on days like uh, Memorial Day, that people would so easily succumb to behaviors that demonstrate the character and willingness to obey authority because it's authority and not think about what moral groundings that authority is using on which to to impose certain activities or obligations. The Chinese government then has been developing this social credit system using computers with hundreds of thousands now, if not millions, of cameras throughout the society taking photographs and video. It's actually uh, almost billions of cameras at this point. See, I knew Lewis would know the number. It's the most heavily surveilled country on Earth. I believe there's one camera for every four people, something like that. Uh, CCTV camera, by the way. Yeah, and so that they are able to gather all this data and observe people's behaviors and mark them up or down based on those behaviors as they're just walking through their average day. Well, what's more interesting than than that is they actually then tie these scores to the types of, of... commodities and and opportunities that you can engage in in the country. So, for instance, if your social credit score falls below a specific threshold, you can be barred from buying train tickets or plane tickets or having from jobs. renting accommodations or having specific jobs or getting going your to kids places. into school. But what's more interesting than that, I think, is that is that your presentation of that system is a little incomplete because what's fascinating about that social credit system is that much of the technology that went into it was actually born and made in Silicon Valley. And then that further, that this is now a product that the CCP is selling, not, o- and not only using it for domestic use, but it is selling to a variety of other regimes in the Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere to try and propagate this model of social sort of control. 1984 authoritarianism. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me hit this break and pick up on that with you, because this is some of the most frightening stuff that people appreciate usually when it's too late. Let's talk about that when we get back with Lewis and Hugh Hallman. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. That's David Jones of the Monkees. Davy Jones of the Monkees. Lewis, uh, you probably don't know much about the Monkees. But I will tell hey, you. Hey, we're. Yes, I will tell you. Davy Jones was so popular. So popular that there was another rock musician named David Jones who had to change his name. So as not to be confused with Davy Jones, who was that other rock musician? That is the question we are offering up to you. I have no earthly idea. David Bowie. Davy Jones was so popular that David Bowie had to change his name to David Bowie. Learn something new every day. Once upon a time, you know, this is, Chesterton said this is a country of rising and falling stars, you know? 
It's the equality that is the long-term norm, he said. The ballad of yeah. the white horse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, Who knew Davy Jones would be bigger than David Bowie and vice versa? <clears throat> In time, Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman are my guests. 602 The threat, non-military, although it could be militarized, but the, the effective non-kinetic threats from China that we were talking about and if you want to say another thing or two about that, Lewis, go right ahead. But I want to make sure we cover what we were talking about on the break, too. And if you want to springboard into that, that's fine. But that's the issue so of we, we, how the religious society we once were is being taken over by a cultish effect. So um, here, here's the issue that... While in the U.S. we have seen a decline very much in rates of religiosity, at least among organized religions, um, for the last hundred years or so, um, I don't think that the religious impulse within us is diminished at all. I think that, you know, that has not gone away, just the conventional forms of organization where we would practice our religion in the old days has gone away. And so instead we're left with this weird sort of um, mismatch between, I I guess, really religion without the morality and the, uh, um, the dogma just kind of leaves you ideology, this rote, Sort of well, could you say religion without obligation? Maybe sure. That's a, that's perhaps a, a better way to phrase and, it. And I disagree with you both. It is religion with obligation, and it's an obligation established not through some notion of moral values that are let me let me try another formulation derived or defined from uh, human history and objective understanding. It is defined as some of the critical race theorists would say: racism is what I say it is. Yes, of course. And since I'm going to be the one dictating what the gospel is, you get to do whatever I say. That includes, and I can never remember the nice scholar's name, uh, that's it, Ibram Kendi, who says things like we should be confessing our racism to him, apparently, because he'll tell you what is racist or not. He's the high priest. And he's the high priest, and we need to confess our sins of racism to him, all of which sounds awfully familiar, and that familiarity comes from the Soviet Union and communist China, where the the effort was to humiliate human beings out of their souls, that they would eventually confess to things that they knew to be absolutely abhorrent to what they stand for. Every POW in Vietnam knows exactly what you're talking about. At least about. every American POW Correct. knows Thank exactly you. that. Right. Well, it's, also, it's also about propagating cultural guilt, right? It's actually very common in North Korea under the Juche system. Of course. So, so what you'd see is... Um, with these kinds of forced confessions, the idea is to get you to confess to anything, and if you the issue because if you don't, you then lose privileges and the like. And so it's 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 kind of a way for your party superiors to always be able to have some measure of dirt and control on you that you then are are obligated to provide. Them. You miss the piece about the soul, Lewis. When you when one is eventually brought to confess to something that the the person knows not to be correct, but they eventually are broken to the point of doing that, you have broken their soul. You have broken their spirit, and that is the goal. It is to make sure that you have people who behave in exactly the way you want them to behave, that the Chinese Communist uh, Party, that the Chinese government is now using a social credit system that many of that population find to be just fine. They have already lost that 
opportunity to be their fullest selves. They have given that up, but they come from a cultural norm in which that is more the regular thing. The unique nature of people in this country was based on the fact that they came from a cultural background where we were to be left alone. Our own independence, our individuality was important, more important than the collective. And now we're seeing a process by which that is being altered. They have gotten to our children, and our children are being raised to understand and believe that the cultural norm is driven by the collective, not the individual, and that there's nothing wrong with sacrificing the individual— as long as it's not yourself, someone else's individuality gets to be sacrificed to be pulled in line with whatever critical race theory or socialist concept that these people want to advance. Or the modern environmental movement. Same thing. Yeah, I, I, I think the millenarianism there is is probably more pronounced than in almost any other leftist or progressive movement. I think it's there. And and that is the mark of a cult or a millenarian uh, end times movement, isn't it? Where you can have these hysterical, paranoid um, uh, uh, predictions, prognostications, warnings. If you don't do X, this will befall you, and it will. Then you also get odd dates. That's very much the mark of a cult, too. We were used to hearing 50 years move to 10 years, move to nine years, move to we won't be able to do it in nine years, but we have to do it anyway. You know, These kinds of very apocalyptic things really are the province Seth, actually, of the left now. You're giving me a kind of an, an insight or an idea with that. Um, there's a, a, actually a fairly rich academic literature investigating sort of more traditional cults, mm-hmm. particularly the end kind apocalyptic mm-hmm, types. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's observed very often is that repeated failures to predict the end of days right, right. actually tend to... Reinforce. Cause members to double down. Right, 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 right. Exactly, right. and so and so it's an inverse relationship. Right. The more the, the more wrong the you are, failure. the more adherence you get. Yes, <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and the more opportunity you, you have to stand like, up to the it's unbelievers. Like becoming the Secretary of State if you're a Democrat. Well, very much. Yeah. <laughs> the more wrong you are, the higher you go. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, but, go ahead. I believe that's called the Peter Principle. Yeah, maybe but that, even Republicans yeah, yeah. have that. No, Elizabeth you, you, Dole did get uh, pushed into the cabinet out of the White House. But you've made, you've very much made my point for yeah. me, Seth. Yeah. In the that as we see this hysterical, ever-increasing pace of, of projections of when we're going to see the end of the world, the firmer these people yeah. will cling to their, their daft ideas. No, that's absolutely right. And, and so Hugh is old enough to remember, and you may not know the essay. <clears throat> it was famous in the 60s. I was talking about it yesterday called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. It's a big essay by a guy named it, Richard actually. Hofstetter, right? You know it from uh, Columbia. And it was an indictment of the cons- the Goldwater movement for being uh, uh, envenomed by paranoia and the kinds of things I was talking about, communists under every rock or whatever, or what have you, uh, tying the excesses of Joe McCarthy to Goldwater. I still and, love, by the way, that it, McCarthyism is presented as the worst thing that ever happened in America by contemporary historians and impressions, which is basically to say that leftists couldn't get a job in Hollywood. And that is, in fact, the worst and darkest chapter in our period. It, well, they will tell us it was our darkest chapter. What's interesting is how much they are aping it now. But indeed. we can talk about that, too. But the Hofstadter thesis is now inverted totally. The, all that kind of paranoia, all that end times kind of talk, nuclear winter, nuclear war, entire ecosystems disappearing before our very eyes. This is the province of the left now. Let's pick up on that when we come back. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman and Hugh Holman are my guests. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is the number. Lewis, did you want to say another word on the issue of cults and the left and millenarianism? Well, just that um, the more that we kind of have these these sort of dogmas, these ideologies just ruminating in the, the background, the harder it becomes, I think, for us to have real conversations about uh, empirical reality and how we actually make progress on the very issues that, that we're trying to solve. So one of, the, one of the things that I'm eternally frustrated with with regards to critical race theory is the fact that every single analysis that is performed, every point that they make, every argument is always done without considering age distributions. And the reason that, that is very important is that different races, different racial groups, do not share the same demographic traits. You can't actually compare them very easily. So the big one that's always thrown around is average wealth disparity between, say, whites, African-Americans, and Hispanics. And, you know, you might find if you do an analysis that the average white family in the U.S. has, in fact, 10 times the net worth of the average black family, give or take. The issue, though, is that the average white in the U.S. is about age 59, where the average African-American in the U.S. is age 32. Now, how many 60-year-olds have, would you say, have less net worth than when they were 30? I don't think very many. It's very rare in fact, for 30-year-olds to have a significant net worth at all. And yet, the median age for Hispanics is less than this also. So when we keep baying endlessly about these racial divisions in our country, very often it's because someone hasn't done the very obvious step of asking, wait, how old are all these people? Does or this make any sense? what else could account for this difference? Or what else could account for it? This, you know, this was a massive issue about a decade ago when when President Obama got under hot water for um, uh, advocating for the uh, the gender pay gap, because the very simple analysis back then the was 80, that eighty eight cents to a it was dollar. seventy nine cents on the dollar is what right. the analysis was. But the only way that you get that number is if you take the gross earnings of all women and divide that by the gross earnings of all men, and don't take into account at all how many hours they each work or their education rates or anything else like that. And so by looking at the, doing the surface number analysis and repeating it back and forth to themselves as if it's some sort of morning prayer or ritual, we are farther and farther and farther perpetually from being able to break this stranglehold and, and actually solve these very issues. Because well, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to make things better for, for the disenfranchised or the dispossessed, that it might help to actually identify who they really are in a statistically rigorous way rather than waving around and pretending that skin color is the proxy for everything wrong with this country. Yes, and, and the, the original sin that can, can, continues to be used to drub us all, the 1619 Project, thank you, New York Times, to suggest that skin color accounts for every difference in every group in this country. A counterexample that has led to the destruction of one race is being Jewish because sure. Jews always are wealthier. They're in a society typically uh, criticized for being the wealthy who are absconding with the resources. And nobody's ever done the analysis properly, including in Nazi Germany, that the reason that Jews generally 
were wealthier is because they're also a much older population as a demographic. And it's exactly the same driver between young African-Americans and older white people and even older Jewish families. That's that's the reality that drives that. And yet we seem to use that in exactly the same way. Nazi Germany used it as a means to get rid of an entire class of people. And critical race theorists are using exactly the same notions to try to advance their power base on the basis only of race. Well, it's also critical race theory is also becoming radically resegregationist. It's disgusting. I mean, many of the many of the uh, uh, thoughts and ideas coming out of the Mauser of its proponents are exactly those that came out of the Mauser of the Klan a century ago. They actually really also came out of the Confederacy 150 years ago and defeated huh. by the Republican right. Party. Right, and defeated by the Republican Party and the majority of Americans. This point is lost. When we talk about that original sin, which no one is no one is supportive of, obviously, but it was defended morally as the intent of the founding by a minority of Americans known as the Confederacy. And that exact same reading of our founding is shared by BLM, the progressives, CRT, and the 1619 movement. They are in league with the Confederate view of America. I want to say one more word on that and then come back when we come back. We'll be back. If you're uh, thinking about ditching those utility bills and going solar, you want to reach my friend Solar Sandy. Actually, she looks a little bit like Juice Newton, who we're listening to right now. Now, Solar Sandy is great. She brought integrity back to solar in Arizona and has the formula that actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. When you go solar, it's important you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy is the right way. She has the formula and wants to put and will put your hard-earned money back in your pocket. And if you sign up now with her, she'll pay your power bills for one year, your solar panel payments for one year, and give you a $1,000 bonus at signing. Check her out at AskSolarSandy.com, especially those testimonials from other customers. They're amazing. She is amazing. Uh, She is a good friend, and I commend her with my highest recommendation. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let Sandy do all the work. Or give her a call at 623-850-8229. That's AskSolarSandy.com or 623-850-8229. Lewis Hallman. You had a uh, a brain uh, a brain child a brain child. I did, I did. So we were talking about this sort of new religious impulse that seems to be dominating uh, uh, a lot of expression on the left. But I'd, I'd like to kind of, I guess, not walk that back, but but be a little more careful about how we have this conversation because um, when you know it. If I'm going to call leftists religious zealots, then that's a really good way to get a lot of Republican high fives. But it's maybe not a good way to make a point or or win elections. Um, and I, I worry too much or, or I worry often, at least, about my own tendency to simply look at the worst examples of behavior on the other side, the crazy foaming at the mouth CRT people, and then ascribe this mindset to everyone who disagrees with me. And so I think my question is this, is if we acknowledge that fairly, I think, that it is in fact a minority of of the left that is truly crazy, how do we talk about them? How do we talk with them? And and, and sort of how how do we talk around them without delving into 
just ad hominem and losing our ability to to be taken seriously. So, so that's 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 a series of pregnant points and questions. First of all, is the premise. Um, uh, I, I think that's interesting when you talk about the crazy CRT people uh, who are foaming, and we don't want to over elevate or overestimate their numbers. I, I I think that would have been a good thing to say thirty years ago. I am amazed at how uh, suffusive CRT has become through our institutions. I don't think it's just a crazy anomaly anymore. I don't think it's just an asterisk in the left. I think it is nearly definitional of the left. I think that this is their new horse. This is their new cavalry, and they're going to ride it as far as they can. Who knew it would enter? Who knew it would enter the Department of Defense or the military academies? We thought it was a Harvard sociology experiment. It's now really part and parcel of the entire country. So here, here's my issue, though, is that when we when I talk to people who identify as on the left, many of them don't, in fact, ha- you know, hold a lot of these really silly ideas, right? And so I, I think that what is happening is that we're seeing a lot of the left be dominated by a new group of very loud voices. And because these voices are, you know, advocate crazy wild things, we give them disproportionate amounts of our attention. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe we possibly. give them proportionate. Maybe amounts. we do. Maybe. I will concede that's my that. point. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe we give them a, a disproportionate but not imprudent amount of our attention. Here's what Shall I'm going to. I'm going to bring it back to a reality check here. Right. I believe Lewis is correct that the leaders of these movements are very loud. And very powerful because they can be very destructive and they intend to impose destruction. It was not lost on most of us that the Black Lives Matter movement that pushed the, uh, the Floyd marches included massive destruction of property and violence. That is a tool that is used by folks who want to overthrow the, the current norm of the society. Oh, it looked like the French Revolution. That's correct. Yeah. But let me give you examples of how... Uh, much that has altered our society in small ways, mostly from people that I think Lewis is talking about. It's not a majority of Americans who believe this stuff in the same way that most Americans who gave up liberty to wear masks or not, not using that as my indicator of whether you're a weakling or not, just you choose that. I'll use that as an example that most Americans just didn't want to engage in the fight. They just wanted to go along to get along and not be in the hassle. Well, if you're on the left side, your party has swung so far left that you're going to mouth that. You're going to make those noises whether or not you believe it because it's just too much trouble to not go along. Why do I say that? Because here we have Major League Baseball desperately trying to get people back into the stands, and yet... When the Diamondback games are being announced and they talk about the fact that there are lots of seats available and come down and enjoy this great environment and have this wonderful time, not only do they have Black Lives Matter posters, which are offending people on the right, they then have repeated throughout the broadcast, don't forget to wear your mask, keep your distance, wash your hands. These are people who are insisting that all the restrictions are off in the stadium. Come down, sit next to one another, enjoy a baseball game, but don't forget to keep your distance. The cross-messaging has gotten so absurd and so bad, precisely because the 80% in the middle just don't have the emotional bandwidth anymore to put up with the crap. So they're going along with it. Why else would you see a major business 
begging people to come down to the stadium while repeating the message from the other side. Wash your hands, keep your distance, wear a mask. That's exactly the opposite message of what they're saying as they're begging people to come down. That's how goofed up this is. And it's not 80% of us who are in the fight for CRT or for the right. It's 10% on the extremes, and the rest of us are caught in the crossfire. Yeah, but you got to ask. See, I think that's the right analysis, but I think you got to ask <clears throat> if there's an extreme or if there are competing extremes, which one has the momentum and the propulsion and the money and is winning over the hearts and minds and you're of 80%. Right. It's, it's, and it's it, not we. Or bludgeoning them. them enough to win them. It's not win them over. Bludgeoning them enough to get them in line. Yeah, yeah Fair enough. Fair enough. And thus... Just justification for wanting to highlight what they're talking about and condemning it because I want to save the 80%. And I think you're right there. And Lewis's point, I think. My worry, though, is that if you if you look at the, the 80% on the left. How right, much time if, do if, I have, Chris? One second. How much time? Let's, let's, let's uh, pick this up and conclude it on the other we'll side. My bad. We'll be right back. This has been a great hour. Just a great hour. I wish we had another one, but we do next week. Hugh and Lewis, thank you. Uh, do you want to take us out with those concluding thoughts there? So we were talking before the break about our tendency to caricature or misconstrue the other side and how that affects our ability to persuade and convince people. And... The really the best way I can describe it is this way, is that when people caricature Republicans unfairly, I tend to discredit any intellectual or political argument that they're making at the time. I just won't listen to it because they, you know, don't understand what they're talking about when they caricature Republicans and they make light of those who I think highly of. But we have to realize that there is a, recipro a reciprocal relationship here and that when we caricature the left we are playing directly into those same forces where then it's it's much harder to take us seriously it's much harder to be persuasive if we're more interested in dunking on somebody than we are advancing the argument carefully and i think that's a fair point and to sort of conclude that as we occasionally too often shrilly talk about how unfair the news media is to the conservative perspective uh, I think that plays into their desire to drive us nuts and to cause us to articulate host hostile messages rather than recognize that we are a group of people with a real philosophy. This is not about group think and gathering uh, anxious, angry mobs of different colors. It is about creating a path forward based on a philosophy that recognizes that we have inherited one of the most impressive, no, the most impressive uh, structures to maximize the joy and pleasure of human existence. And we've got to now bear that burden and carry the weight of that more carefully, because indeed the republic is at risk from our failure properly to do so. And it will be on our heads that we failed in the mission to retain this great society. Hugh Holman, Lewis Holman, thank you. <clears throat> the rest of you, God bless you, and until tomorrow, class dismissed.